I always hear this phrase, people say, the person who's not going to take away your job is not AI. It's going to be a human with AI. The moral of the story is that you need to, as a human, adopt AI to fight the other person, the human of AI. Seems like a very obvious thing. And there's always a job for humans. But in terms of technology waves, you're not fighting as humans with AIs. You're fighting an infinite copies of AI effectively at zero marginal cost with a whole stack of humans who are tailored for that versus your job, even if you're using AI. And what I mean by that is like, you know, if you look at technology waves, like the horse industry, people had horses for thousands of years and we had wheel rides, you had farriers to help with the horseshoes, you had folks who rode horses and coaches and so, so forth. And then once the car came out with mass manufacturing, everybody working in the shops and the manufacturing lines, horses disappeared effectively across 20 years. So once the adoption curve kicks off, the whole industry is at risk, not just like you just can't adopt AI on an individual basis to compete against a whole corporation that reinvents what's possible. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Meet Rinkus, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkus is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.rinkus.co.id. Morning, Shuyen. Rise and shine. <laughs> Morning, Jeremy. I should say that to you. I know. You're all the way in the New York time zone again. So lots of news this week. But first of all, we want to give a shout out to Yen Sanchez. He met at the Hustle Fund Organized Investor Camp at Bali. And he said that he's a great fan of our podcast episode so far. I mean, I told Ian that I labor under the delusion that no one actually listens to us. So I don't feel too self-conscious when we're on the air. But it's always really gratifying to hear that people enjoy it and hopefully get something out of it. So lots of uh, tech news uh, across the region. So first of all, we have Bioformis conducting a second round of layoffs. So to quote the Business Times, they are laying off 45 staff in Singapore and at least 85 staff globally. This is the second round. So three months ago, they laid off 120 employees where it operated across Singapore, Boston, and Bengaluru. It's also vacating its office space in Singapore by December with the remaining employees working from home permanently. So this is the second time we mentioned Bioformis after the CEO departed. Any thoughts that you have here? I think we did an episode on layoffs earlier in the year. A lot of people make the mistake of not cutting enough in the first round and then having to do subsequent cuts. And that's actually just like a big hit to morale. And so I would encourage folks, if you are considering layoffs, to be more aggressive in the first go around and try to avoid having small successive cuts because that actually just makes people really demoralized and also makes everyone think whether their own job is at risk and slows the recovery to everybody being focused and back to normal. So I think this is a really common pattern. Yeah, and I think 
Biformis is a unicorn. So I think I was really rooting for the company because we want to see more unicorn exits in the region. So I think not being privy to any information here, this is kind of like a flag that a lot of decisions are being made, difficult ones that have to be made. And so I don't know why else is going to happen, but I think there'll be more news and really hope, fingers crossed, that they're able to figure this out. Yeah, and I think that sort of teases up for Flash Coffee's exit from Singapore. And I think for some, that may have been a surprise given that they had recently announced a raise, a pretty substantial raise in the spring. But as we know, a lot of these raises get announced well after the fact. And they had done a pretty aggressive expansion in Singapore with a number of outlets. And I think there are reports of staff not being paid or not being paid completely over the last couple of months, in addition to other creditors. So that's a big one. And I think, Jeremy, you'd had some skepticism about these tech-enabled commerce models previously. So I guess I have to say you're right. Yeah, I've discussed this in previous episodes. It's less about skepticism, more about question marks, about what is needed for it to be successful. Um, so maybe... Doubling back a bit. Yeah, I think it's right to say that Flash Coffee, they raised like what, a 50 mil Series B early in the year. And to kind of like at least underscore it, they closed his, his entire Singapore country operations. So all of his outlets, over a dozen outlets. I think the last round is 11, but no more before that. And so they owe $14 million so far in debt that needs to be covered to creditors and staff. So let's see how that pans out. But I think there's a certain kind of wind down process of country operations, but it means it's still going a move going forward, a going concern. In other words, it's still an operational company in its other markets. So I think that's the conversation. I think there's two parts of it. There's the technical part of like, how do you run this type of business? That's one. But two is what's the thesis generally between tech-enabled services, especially coffee and consumer goods. I think that there is something fundamentally true, which is that Southeast Asia could drink more caffeine and sugar and fat. But what I mean by that is that I think there's a lot of perspective, which is that bubble tea, coffee, like these are all you know, fundamentally substances that are tasty, yummy, and addictive. And so I think there is a truth to the matter that as Southeast Asia gets uh, more well off, that it wants to consume these substances. For myself, I'm trying to avoid caffeine. I'm trying to avoid uh, sugar. I'm trying to avoid fat because I'm trying to be healthier. But the truth is on a per capita consumption, and this is something that's very common, is Southeast Asia is an order magnitude lower than what you see in Europe. And Europe is an order magnitude of America, right? In terms of consumption. So I think there's something in terms of the tailwind to say, it's like, is your product a vitamin or painkiller? All these things are like painkillers in the sense that you want to consume more and more of it. So these are fundamentally decent. I think if you're selling like pizza, it's very different from selling coffee with sugar and milk. Like just the hit, the consumability, the pick up and go nature of it. You don't need to sit down space. Makes those per outlet economics way more powerful, much more efficient. But also I think there's actually very few foods. I can't think of a person eating chicken rice every day or having two chicken rice a day or three chicken rice a day. But people say that about coffee all the time. It's like, oh, the maximum I can do is three coffees a day with my espresso or with my macchiato. And I think there is a fundamental tailwind in terms of the substance. So I can go more into what I think about the business model as well if you want. Well, first of all, I just want you to know there's an Instagram account called Guipong and it is a guy who eats chicken rice every day. And he's done it for three years. So... Some people can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, are there goods that as people get wealthier, they consume more of? Is caffeine one of them? Okay, I buy that. Is technology really a part of that story? Should these things be given technology multiples or raising venture capital like sums? Is equity the right vehicle to do some of this stuff? That's like an open question for me. I mean, in old history, like Starbucks was venture backed. It sort of created a category of a global chain of this third space, as they call it. And so it has been done. But I guess my question is, in this day and age, what is it that you're bringing to the table that's so different? That is it a segment? 
hey, you're offering at a price that's a Starbucks coffee at this point costs like eight bucks. Who's going to spend eight times three a day? That seems crazy. Um, and so you're coming in like, hey, this is a $2 coffee, but it's not go BC. It's like espresso drink. It's a test coffee, but still affordable. What's the angle that makes? And then how does somebody get addicted to your thing over all the other things that they're going to walk past on their way to their office or leaving their office on their way back to lunch or to, to the MRT or whatever it is. I don't totally get that, but I'm not a consumer person and I'll freely admit that. So I'm kind of curious if you have a different view. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that I have some experience with CPG in the past. And what my point of view is that, first of all, I think it depends on the market. Is the market already saturated or is the market starting to experience the joys? So the joke, you can see that for bubble tea, right? So bubble tea started in East Asia first. It became very saturated. And obviously, you started to see Singapore grow and then now it became very, very hot. And then it had this boom and then I pruned a lot. It's downsized, but it's a daily habit right now for many folks. And so the thing about coffee, of course, is that Singapore GDP per capita is about $100,000 USD equivalent to the US and higher than the UK. So the truth is coffee is actually a very saturated market in Singapore. So I think any new challenger, tech enabled, not will always have had a tough time competing in that saturated market. But I think the story is a little bit different for the Philippines. So we have pickup coffee, then we have flash coffee and other kopi kanangan in Indonesia. So I think the story is a little bit different because their story is saying that we have a rising middle class and historically they drank tea and then they have had only experience with bad coffee. And so this is the first opportunity for them to have a better quality coffee, not the best coffee. They're not trying to go for the luxury or premium and not even actually honestly going for mass premium, but maybe even mass coffee. And then they don't have the opportunity to buy, but now they do. And more importantly, they also want to sew up that distribution player, right? So the joke that Starbucks used to have, which was like, was this the onion headline where it's like a Starbucks location opened up inside another Starbucks. So the joke was that Starbucks was really aggressive at store expansion. I think there's some truth to it because the truth of the matter is that coffee is a distribution play, right? So sales times marketing, obviously people think about it, but people really underappreciate distribution for physical goods. And the truth of the matter is that you're not going to walk 20 minutes more to get your coffee. That's the awkward reality. Yes, somebody on the podcast now is probably screaming, of course I'll walk 20 minutes for my better coffee. But the truth is most people who buy it are buying it as a convenience and that's the mass. And so I think to some level, having that saturation, the right points allows you, and this is again a bubble tea argument, have the sighting arguments that have the footfall, that you're able to saturate the spot and have perfect coverage because you have both cover, not just offline footfall now. But now that you have food delivery, you can also cover online group orders as well. So that's supposed to work together, stitch together. And I think the argument is that there's a land grab, which is that if you buy and manage to get all these footfall areas, then you can't squeeze out potential new entrants because you've drained the area of the coffee consumer. So I think that's the argument and thesis. And there's some level of truth to it because in, in a world of locations, Starbucks has a huge team just for figuring out footfall in the right locations anyway. So there's some truth to it. But like you said, to some extent it's replicable because it depends on your competitors as well. So again, I, I think we want to divide that you know, fork in the road, which is like saturated market, advanced market versus unsaturated category creation. So I think the former doesn't really make sense in general for a new entrant. And then the latter, I think there's some thesis for it. But how durable and how enduring that competitive advantage is. Tough business. Tough business. Actually, I thought that Luckin Coffee had an interesting play because they require you to have an app in order to buy a coffee. So it is like a mandatory step uh, for them. So it's quite interesting because from my perspective is excluding its prior scandals and misconduct. But they've cleaned up shops supposedly since then. But I think the play of requiring customers to sign up is interesting because obviously they've made a trade-off in turning their head to say, hey, we are not going to have a lot of customers come in because they're going to bounce out 
because of this privacy concern. So people are just not going to buy. But I think it's kind of interesting because at least now they have a supposedly 100% coverage of their customer. And I think in business, you always want to control either your suppliers or you want to control your customers. And Luckin Coffee is interesting where I think the argument that they're thinking is that it's better to bounce out all your sporadic people who are weirded out by having to install an app to buy Luckin Coffee. So saying like, hey, I'm willing to focus on my core consumers who are really insistent, really incentivized, but have them come in through the app and then we give them promotions. So really activate and keep that core consumer. So I thought it was just a very interesting, different approach, which is quite contrary to most everybody. I haven't studied it deeply. Did they have the app from the beginning or was this something that they implemented later on? I think they've always been very app oriented because they've always wanted customer information. They wanted targeting, they wanted promotions. And I think that was also a factor in their previous misconduct because when Muddy Waters did that short sale report, I think a, a lot of those com- codes, promo codes and incentive traffic was being driven through the app. Good to know. Yeah. I think there's lots of interest still. And generally, it just makes sense that as people get richer in Southeast Asia, they want to buy new categories of goods. It's just that, like you said, how enduring that technology advantage and as a result, what kind of capital to raise with those expectations is like the question mark. Do you have those friends who are like, I'm tired of being an investment banker or a lawyer and I want to open a cafe? And you're like, no, please don't open a cafe. It's a very difficult business. There's all kinds of food verticals. Yeah, Um, it's that bad. I think that if you're willing to build a business, this is like I say, a labor of love. I think you can have a decent salary and just an outcomes perspective. You know, I sure. think yeah. if you tell me you're going to open a cafe, I'm going to tell you, please don't do it. Okay. What's interesting that has happened in, I think, Southeast Asia is what I call the emergence of food brands. So they, somebody, remember those groups that either where the second or third generation takes over the hawker brand and makes it into a cafe yeah. concept? Yeah, but they have scale. If you have scale, but like, you know, when you're just going to go open one artisanal shop, just like the level of effort relative to the return, I think it's just out of work. So you got to tell your friends to be like, hey, set up a search fund and let's go buy a old grandma, you know, taco ideal or some sort of pick up and go brand. I like the popia one, by the way. I always thought to myself that there should be a popia brand, pick up and go. It's like salad, but in a wrap. That's like such an easy <laughs> play in my head. I mean, it's like an Asian burrito. And then now you just modernize it. You add like all kinds of unholy condiments. You Why do you need to modernize a popia? A popia is already very delicious. I know, don't, but they always don't like, mess with a classic. No, they, they offer the classics for the purists, and the purists will still s- sneer at it and go to the hawker center. <laughs> you know, I'm targeting the bottom of those food courts. You know, those not food courts. So. I'm gonna tell my wife about that. She should add popian to the to the roll menu. I mean, that's the same. It was like what? It was radish, turnip, or whatever you want to have, right? Hey, it's a good question. I'm gonna ask her. How come they don't have a popian on the menu? I look forward to the seasonal addition <laughs> to salad stuff. I mean, you can imagine it working. It's the same ingredients. Yeah, I told her she needed to add a wing bean salad. That would be a really Asian salad. But I think the material cost is really high. And that's the tricky part of all the salads is that the seasonality of these ingredient costs is actually underappreciated. Okay, back to technology, Jeremy. No back more talking about food. We're just talking this about coffee. The time not time. an area. It's not an area we are experts in. <laughs> Wait, I gotta ask you, what's your point of view, at least on, I wouldn't say like tech enabled coffee, but at least tech enabled food services as well? I think they're tough because I think you just have to think about where the technology really matters. Is it like top of funnel? Like I'm gonna be able to acquire customers more effectively and keep track of them and target them? Is it in OPEX because I'm going to automate like the humans out of it? But my sense is that a lot of the robots and stuff are not actually good enough to automate the whole process. So there's still humans involved. And then the CapEx is really high and most people don't have the CapEx up front. So then you see these robotic startups with models where they're doing, oh, you can treat the robot as a rental. 
So it's paying salary, except you're paying rental for a robot that does something, not the whole thing. Um, Coffee, though, is one that you would think they can automate most of it. Coffee orders have a formula. You're operating a machine. It is a machine. So that's one thing that seems like, hey, you can. And you see them in airports and some hotels and stuff where they're like making espresso drinks um, and it can be open 24-7 and there is something there. Um, So I think you just have to be really clear in your mind about where the technology is actually operating leverage. And it's not not clear to me that you could overcome high real estate costs. Do you get so much leverage out of the technology? Is that the best use of your dollar? And you definitely shouldn't get tech multiples for it. So I think it's hard. But there's people who made a lot of money investing and building franchises, right? So like scaling out brands, scaling out process and things like that. I think those are like, it can be interesting private equity types of investments. Um, I don't know anything about them. I sort of live in this sort of strange little tiny world of software and the internet. No, I think what you reminded me about is that for sure, the people who make the most money from this is the landlords <laughs> from the bubble tea as well as the coffee shops. Like they make the most money because the rentals and every time you see a gain. I think there's a big problem for a lot of these uh, stores is I think the lease. So you are always in that quandary because you always want to have a longer lease because you want to snap them up. For example, during the pandemic, I think a lot of folks, landlords were desperate for folks. So I think a lot of folks try to buy longer leases. But obviously like, puts you in a situation where if you're stuck, then because you picked the wrong location, then you're stuck there for a long time. Uh, versus I think if you have a shorter lease, then you're the other way around, which is the moment the market gets better, the landlord increases rent by 20% every year for the next five years because they know you're doing well and you're like in that interesting position. So I think that's the interesting dynamic and problem for a lot of distribution folks. On that note, I know that you want to talk a little bit about the Money Hero SPAC or NASDAQ. Well, I think it's another Singapore-based company with a regional business that's managed to make it out into the public markets. A SPAC hasn't performed as well as one might have hoped. It's traded down immediately after it. But it's still interesting to see the numbers come out. It's a scale business. They do sort of 60, 70 million of annual revenue. Still loss making, but managed to cut that loss in half over the last year. And they own brands that I think many listeners will be familiar with, you know, Sing Saver, Seedly in Singapore, and then Money Hero in Malaysia and Hong Kong. And they used to be the old sort of like Compare Asia group that's just kind of been rebranded. So I think SPACs have been super out of favor. They tend to get dumped on retail, which is not great. But I think for the company, at least it's trading, it's liquid. I think the challenge from here on out is just making sure you bring this thing to profitability, you grow the analyst coverage because you don't want to be in micro cap purgatory and kind of continue to grow into that. But at least you are now like liquid and publicly traded. Yeah. We put some numbers here is it's the deal was valuation at 300 mil. As of today, October 22nd, it's currently about $60 million in terms of valuation. And they had an exit proceeds of about $100 million from the SPAC to keep growing. And for the year 2022, it had an unaudited net loss after tax of 49.4 million dollars. So these are some numbers. Personally, I've always enjoyed reading Seedly. So I think on a previous brief episode, we had Kenneth Lowe, who was the founder of Seedly, who sold to Money Hero Group, and is currently the founder of Mito Health, which is a longevity startup. So I thought it was just interesting that it's actually a resource that I actually check almost every week. To be honest, <laughs> interestingly, yeah, there's a lot of personal finance stuff that I guess <laughs> there's no nerd wallets, by the way. This, I know something has a flashback to the fact that 
you are a big nerd wallet executive. But there's a lot of opacity for information in Southeast Asia. I mean, it's just a small market, so I guess I understand it. So just trying to understand, I remember reading, like, before I had a kid, I was like, what are the projected expenses of being a parent in Singapore? And I was just like, I read it. I read and it. endless, as many as you want. There's something you could spend endless amounts of money on. Yeah, so the funny part is they actually had, I think, the scenarios, which was like the base scenario, then there's a cheap scenario, and there's an aggressive scenario. So exactly like what you said, took the time to be like, okay, this is what the lowest you can probably take. And this is the most aggressive version probably of this. And that was a wonderful set of articles. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I guess you don't. I guess you're, you're totally clued in. No, no, no. Finance. No, I mean, I worked in personal finance for many years. And so I spent a lot of time reading and thinking about these things. <laughs> but I have to look up CPF things too, because I, I'm not as familiar with the CPF system. And so yeah, when and I came, came back, I had to look it all up. So I'm with you. So I think like... Going back into like tech and software and things like that, it's great that they got out. They've got work ahead, but management claims there's a path to profitability and all you listeners keep getting mortgages and car loans and credit cards and help them get there. I do think the one thing they pioneered, which you see in this market, which you don't see in the US market is the gifts. So they make money through you transact on the recommendation and then you open the bank account or get the credit card or whatever and the issuer will pay them. In the early days, there wasn't really much of an affiliate market. And so they actually offered some of the rewards themselves where they would give the gift like you can get the AirPods or you can get $100 back as a way to convince consumers to use them. Yeah. And they grew that and then were able to develop affiliate relationships with issuers. So I thought that was like a cool part of their story. Yeah. It does remind me of somebody who is waiting on their bicycle. So I think there was a promo and they'll get a folding bicycle and then they bought a financial product. Well, not for the folding bicycle, but it was a big part of it. And I thought it was quite Is that someone you? No, Who is this me. someone? I already have my own fighting bicycle. <laughs> I bought it in cash. And if I had known, I should have signed up for a credit card instead. <laughs> okay. Just the way you said it, you're like, I know someone. I know a I guy. Know someone. No, it's not me, but it's someone we both know, right? Okay. Oh, okay. We'll discuss this offline. We'll discuss this offline, yeah. I mean, it's not a bad decision. It's like, you need a financial product that you're like, might as well just get it. That does remind me, I did sign up for the Ed Sheeran concert tickets coming to Singapore. So I had to download the Chris Fly app and then sign up and do one activity. It was very reasonable. So don't get me wrong. I'm a sucker for all these promos. Just got to find the right one for my wife and I to have a date night. Nice. Nice. Um, we organized the Harvard Business School and Stanford AI event panel. So you were there with Jefferson, right? So love for you to share a little bit more about what you thought. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to do the panel and then ditching me, claiming you have reservists or something. <laughs> I organized it and then I peaced out because I, look, I had the army yeah. reservists. I couldn't come out. For real. I really yeah. wanted to be there because Jefferson is at Advanced Intelligence Group as well. Tommy, buy now, pay later. Love the yeah, yeah. approaches and products. I think it was a super fun event. It was pretty well attended. I think we had a hundred plus people show up. And I think we did some sort of covering what is AI? What are we talking about here? Why are people excited about it? Haven't we been talking about AI for like decades? Why is now suddenly this surge of interest? And where should people be spending their time and money, essentially? And then I think there were questions from the audience that were like, what are the implications of this for what my kids should study? Should they still study computer science if AI can write code? There were lawyers who were afraid. They were, we heard about lawyers using ChatGPT who then hallucinated fake case law. What regulations can we impose to stop this from happening? It, it was, I think, a really lively conversation. And I think there's also a conversation around like, 
given the U.S.-China trade war and the different monoliths being built, like what's the difference between the U.S. models or the Western LLMs and the Chinese LLMs? And how do we think those will evolve? So it was a pretty wide-ranging conversation. It was super fun. And yeah, thanks to the HBS and GSB clubs for putting that together. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, also big shout out to Joanna for uh, putting it together as well. She was a big driver of that as well. So I think what's interesting is that from my perspective as well, there's also been South- Southeast Asian news that dovetails with that, right? So I think there's a big announcement that ASEAN basically, I think there's a big news where the EU basically said, hey, we want to be the leader on AI regulations just like we were for data privacy or GDPR. And so we want to use our large block of countries to set national standards on AI. And then ASEAN basically said, nope. So ASEAN basically wrote a report saying, we want to be more hands-off and we're going to let every country do it their own way. Which is interesting. I think interesting part about it, and if I sit down the fundamental pieces of it, is that privacy is about who has access to the data. So is it individuals, the government, or corporations? And I think GDPR broadly kind of says like, hey, we want to focus more on individuals, but allow governments to access it. I think when it comes to AI, it's just such a very different context because it's generating content of copyright. So that's actually an interesting differential where some countries have more to lose because they have more copyright materials, for example, being scanned and used. There are some countries that's where it's more beneficial because they're benefiting from the generated outputs. Um, so I think it's an interesting dynamic where it's not as easy to get consensus, I think, at least in this current stage. Well, also, if you read the comments, I think a lot of the ASEAN countries felt like it was a bit early to start regulating. Yeah. So like in the EU drafts, there's notions of levels of risk categories and what is the associated compliance burden depending on what the risk category is. And I think there's a sense that we don't actually know what that will look like yet. And we could just be imposing a really high compliance burden before anybody can do anything. And so before anyone can even start trying to build something, they're trying to respond to all the compliance requests, which is like my definition of a nightmare. So, I mean, we talked about not regulation specifically, but at the panel a little bit around. Are we techno optimists or are we like doom and gloom? The robots are taking over. I mean, I'm an investor. I have to be a techno optimist. (laughs) You're just saying that to please our future robotic overlords. Exactly. Let this be on the record, dear future robot overlords. I'm pro. I think, I mean, I I believe in human ingenuity. So I believe that people will be able to develop and, and control this. I also believe maybe the flip side of that, I think it's really hard to regulate. Do you remember early in the AI craze where people were saying, let's sign this petition to stop development? I think, yeah, it kind of died down. Uh, Yeah, well, exactly. How are you going to stop them? And it's the same thing with the uh, people asking about regulation on some of this stuff, like the lawyer thing. The lawyer used GPT to provide fake information. And I was like, this isn't an AI problem. That's a lazy lawyer problem. You can't legislate lazy people away. That's not possible. That's true. You can't give legislate away the tool that happens to work for both lazy people and hardworking people. So I, I think there's just like some of the practicalities of these things. It's like you can make a legislation, but if the law can't be enforced, then what's the point? Talking about lazy people, you shared an article about how Jamie Dimon claims that AI will allow a world where everybody has three and a half workdays, 3.5 workdays instead of five workdays per week. I mean, I think it's nonsense. I think you just hire fewer people and make them work five days a week. Or six days a week. <laughs> you know, you pay them five I days mean, a week, but, you know, effectively they're working six or seven. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. But maybe people are happy being paid for three and a half days a week and working three and a half days a week. Maybe there is a state where that is. But I think in general, people would rather be paid for five days a week and work five days a week. I don't know. I think, I think what's Probably. true is that the emergence of hybrid and remote work from home 
has allowed for the creation of jobs that are more part-time because you pack it more, you travel less. I think that's true. I think AI as a trend to say that it's going to create a shorter work week feels like the opposite because it seems to me that from my perspective is that productivity enhancing technologies does enhance productivity but also increases relative competition. So I think interesting dynamic I was reading was like apparently farmers like had a 20-hour work week on average. I was reading this interesting study. Obviously, this is during times of plenty or average time. Obviously, during a famine, it's terrible. But there's a lot of holidays, a lot of break. But then as with the rise of each productivity technology, then work becomes more and more industrialized, more standardized. And so you see the emergence of factories and then you see so and so forth. So there's an interesting historical claim. Obviously, it's not saying that's true for AI. AI could break the formula, obviously. I'll quote the study in um, transcript later. But I thought it was an interesting analysis to be like productivity technologies increase productivity on absolute basis but creates competition across producers. Yeah. People who can use it more effectively. Yeah. Basically put pressure on those who don't have it or aren't using it as effectively. And I always hear this phrase people say is like the person who's not going to take away a job is not AI. It's going to be a human with AI. And I laugh at that because it seems like the moral of the story is that you need to as a human adopt AI to fight the other person the human of AI. So it seems like a very obvious thing and there's always a job for humans. But I I laugh because in terms of technology waves, actually, you know, you're not fighting as humans with AIs. You're fighting an infinite copies of AI effectively at zero marginal cost with a whole stack of humans who are tailored for that versus your job, even if you're using AI. And what I mean by that is like, you know, if you look at technology waves, like the horse industry, right? I mean, people had horses for thousands of years and you had wheel rides, you had farriers to help with the horseshoes, you had folks who rode horses and coaches and so, so forth. And then once the car came out with mass manufacturing, everybody working in the shops, at the manufacturing lines, you know, horses disappeared effectively across 20 years. So I think once the adoption curve kicks off, the whole industry is at risk, not just like you just can't adopt AI on an individual basis to compete against a whole corporation that reinvents what's possible. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it comes to the podcasting as well. I was like recently, I was like mind blown because there's so many companies now which are trying to create. I was mind blown recently because on the podcast side, you and I are humans, <laughs> two humans. And for every... Are you? Are you real? Is it really you, Jeremy? I'm already having my three and a half work day work week in Bali. And this is my AI replica talking to you. It's so low value add anyway. But I think the, the crux of it was like, people are like, okay, Jeremy, you just had to adopt AI to compete against all these new AI driven podcasts. This is another human of AI. But I'm meeting startups now that are like basically saying, we want to create a million podcasts. And every day it generates like one or two or three episodes at zero marginal cost effectively. And it can be auto-updated and it gets auto-produced. Like they close the whole loop cycle. And I'm just like, Obviously, one million is a catchy phrase for them. But in my head, I was just like, a single human using AI is way less effective than somebody, a corporation, just using AI to generate a million versions of that, right? So I thought it was interesting just to like have that. Can process. you do one? Can you beta test it? Can you generate an episode that's supposed to be us but isn't us? Yeah, I can. You know what? I'll do that for next time. Yeah, so they already have that. So you look at This Week in Startups, Jason Calacanis, they already have uh, AI bots. So basically, like, they take a script and then they use an a train this AI based on what Shein would say. Or what Jeremy was said, so you could quiz the bot. What I'd be curious. Jason yeah, I'd be curious. say, right? WWJD, right? What would Jason Calacanis do, right? I would be very curious. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I don't know what the answer is here, but yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. She and you well, and I just need that... to relax from now on. Let's just WhatsApp each other all the time and just convert it all into a podcast script, right? Yeah, that would be interesting if you could take an async conversation 
basically take our process today and you could feed it into a model and it would just produce a podcast. That'd be kind of crazy. Yeah, it'd be crazy, but we'll still be losing against the other version that has just infinite personas. Like, it's only a matter of time. Would you listen to a podcast and they're saying there's a debate between, I'm just talking about Napoleon and Gandhi. Like, I can really imagine that, right? It's just like a whole narrative sketch of, I don't know, I'm just brainstorming here. Like, the time context is Napoleon, they're doing invasion of France, Gandhi's an advisor. You could create a whole narrative voice with the right voices, the right personas in terms of the text. Obviously, it would be very flawed from somebody who knew Napoleon and Gandhi in person, but nobody today is alive enough to know who they are in person anymore. So you and I would be like, it sounds like Napoleon, sounds like Gandhi. And that would be the kind of podcast that's now possible that wasn't possible. Yeah, that's like a genre of podcast, like historical fiction. But I don't know. I think it's crazy, maybe. I still think people like to know that there is a real person behind something. And maybe we're just going to go, we'll be like, artisanal podcasters yeah artisanal it's like it's not that it's halluc- handcrafted handcrafted hallucinations I want Jeremy just to lie and make mistakes and not know his numbers instead of an AI hallucination is this a, a human mistake so much more umami than an AI hallucination right maybe but also like you could you can actually interact with us in real life yeah true. you can run into us at a coffee shop that is not flash coffee you can run into us in Bali or in Singapore and New York and have a conversation with us Oh. That's so sweet. Yeah. Or maybe so people won't care and they'll be like, no, I would just rather talk to the AI version of you because it's always available. Yeah, the AI version of Jeremy doesn't wear shorts. <laughs> it's professionally dressed all the time. On that note, thank you so much, Shuyen. It was so much fun as always. I love to summarize the three big conversation topics. First, I think we did, we talked about the layoffs and bioformers as well as Flash Coffee. So I thought it was just interesting to talk about that and reference our past patterns and points of view on layoffs and how to do them in one cut rather than two if possible. The second, of course, was that deep dive into tech-enabled food services, about the margins, the bull case, the bear case, and I think some of the concerns that we have around distribution technology and competition. Lastly, I thought it was fun to discuss AI a little bit and talk about some of the questions that are still open for both of us. I thought it was interesting to discuss about regulation, but also how to think through the economics of what, like you said, robots, for example, for salads would be, but also why robot production for generative AI would be as well. Awesome. See you, Shien. Peace. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.